This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Richard III, with your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And here we are at Richard III. Probably one of the most infamous of uh, England's monarchs. Mm. We covered yeah. him a little bit last time when we did Edward V, and indeed we've had a number of uh, tweets around certain interests, the princes in the tower, the mystery of what happened to them. Yeah, which we uh, solved. We solved it, but other people have their opinions. Yeah. Um, firstly, Richard III has sent us a tweet, Interesting. which is good of him. Uh, he says, well, it certainly wasn't me who killed the princes, uh, but probably the Duke of Buckingham when I was absent of my royal progress. I knew nothing. R3 Rex, <laughs> a.k.a. the Richard III Museum. However, other people were not so convinced by his protestations of innocence. Uh, Medieval Archive said Richard III gets my vote. He just looks guilty. <laughs> a high-priced PR firm would have served him well. Um, however, some people were a little bit more in the middle. Uh, Tudor quotes uh, said, Fascinating whodunit. Jury's still out. And some of the evidence we do have should be rejected flat out for being given under torture, i.e. Tyrrell's confession. Yeah, well, that's true. We didn't mention that. And Tudor Tudor says, I don't know for sure, but I don't want to convict Richard III without more evidence. Um, and uh, Margaret de Bohan suggested, in terms of whether they could, might have survived, if they survived, whose are the skeletons found under the stairs leading to the chapel at the tower? Yeah, and they found them under the stairs hundreds of years after Tyrrell's confessions. Exactly. Yeah. It all seems dried up. But thank you all for the comments, and continue to do so at Rex Factor. Pod on Twitter, rexactpodcast at hotmail.com, or leave a message on the wall on Facebook or comment on the website. Yes. So, on with Richard III. Fair to say, he is probably one of the ones who people will have an opinion of without necessarily knowing an awful lot about him. Yeah. And that's because of the fact that he has been written about an awful lot. Probably yeah. got more books about him than we've done any of the previous ones. And we've got that picture of him. Is he the one where he's... Uh, where he's twisting the ring on his finger. Twisting the ring, sort of playing with a dagger, looking, looking a little awkward. bit fidgety. Yeah. But of course, in terms of the historiography, he's often portrayed as this sort of monstrous character in English history, particularly, most famously, by Shakespeare mm. in Richard III, and also some of the Henry VI plays. Some of the words Shakespeare used to describe him, crookback, foul misshapen stigmatic, elvish marked, abortive rooting hog, bottled spider... Poisonous bunch-backed toad and the dreadful minister of hell. Well, that's some pretty serious. He's pretty. He's levelling some accusations yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, a contemporary sort of Tudor chronicler, John Roos, um, said Richard was retained within his mother's womb for two years and emerging with teeth and hair to his shoulders. This King Richard, who was excessively cruel in his days, reigned in the way that the Antichrist is to reign. What now? Why has he got such beef with Richard? That's just not true. Indeed. So it's some pretty exceptional stories of monstrous um, evils yeah. and indeed appearance that mm. are levelled against him. However, there have been many people who have argued against many revisionists. I don't want to give anything away, but is this just because he's deposed and you're backing the current? That's certainly course. likely yeah, to be an element right. of it. Indeed, the, uh, there's a Richard the Third Society which exists. I'm not sure if there's anything similar for any other monarch, but it exists to promote in every possible way research into the life and times of Richard III and to secure a reassessment of the material relating to this period and of the role in English history of this monarch. I.e., don't be mean to him, he was quite good. <laughs> right. A historian in the 50s, Paul Murray Kendall, said that he laid down a coherent programme of legal enactments, maintained an orderly society and actively promoted the well-being of his subjects. Sure, sounds rather lovely. Well, it's good subjectivity right there. But there's ongoing debate. Charles Ross more recently uh, described him as a product of a very violent era, the Wars of the Roses, influenced by his experience there, and contrasts some good government with some rather immoral political behaviour. Right. Whereas we have other people, like Desmond Seward, who's a very modern historian, goes right back to the beginning and basically says that everything that's ever he's ever been accused of, he probably did. And he criticises, as he calls them, lady novelists who promotes the white legend of him being a nice king, 
whereas in fact he's the precursor to the Machiavellian prince. Sexist, isn't it? It's a little bit sexist and rather <laughs> anti-Richard as well. So we've got a wide range of opinions still. He excites a lot of debate, a lot of passion on either side. Mm-hmm. People who are really firmly in his camp and people who absolutely hate him. Right, at what? the moment, I don't like him. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. So he's born in 1452 son of Richard, Duke of York, and Cecily Neville, and he becomes king in 1483, um, just before his birthday, so he's about 30 years old at the time, and he's the 14th great-granduncle of Elizabeth II. Uncle. Uncle, indeed. (laughs) Already a little clue as to what's (laughs) going to happen next. In terms of his appearance, as you were describing that uh, portrait of him, unlike Edward IV, apparently, he strongly resembled his father in that he was dark-haired and short, Right. Maybe at 5'6 or something, we don't know. But most famously, it's suggested that he was deformed. Tudors, and in particular Shakespeare, portray him as being hunchbacked. But I seem to remember that, that picture, yes. where he is hunchbacked, where he's, um, mm. he's twisting the ring on his finger, um, that was a later edition. It's interesting, his portra- portraits of him, which often will be from the Tudor period, like the 16th century... Mm get adjusted yeah so sometimes he gets the hump put back sometimes the hump comes down a bit by the way there was a suggestion of a little hump for some reason (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's suggested that maybe there might have been mistakes um during his birth which might have led to slight deformities as he was being pulled out and maybe one shoulder a little bit raised he had a little bit of a withered arm so he might have had slight deformities but there's no mention in terms of chroniclers at the time saying might God, he's a monster. <laughs> right. So we presume that that is a bit yeah. of Tudor myth uh, going on there. In terms of his upbringing, he's born at Fotheringay Castle, but grows up at Middleham in the household of our old friend Warwick the Kingmaker. Oh, yeah. So this yeah. is where he had some of his childhood friends, Francis Lovell, who'd be one of his most trusted knights, and Anne Neville, who will come into his story a little bit later. Um, 1460, of course, his father, the rich Duke of York, and his elder brother, Edmund of Rutland, were killed at the Battle of Wakefield. This Which was that one? That was the one when Richard, Duke of York, was trying to assert his claim to the throne and then he left his castle and got killed by the Lancastrians well, when he was all surrounded. So, only eight years old, his father, one of his brothers has died. He's getting inured to violence and upheaval mm. pretty early on. However, for Edward IV, um, when he ultimately secured the throne, lost the throne when uh, Warwick and George, Duke of Clarence, who was another brother, betrays him, but Richard III, or Gloucester as he was, stays very loyal to his brother in this time, and in 1471 fights in his first battles with distinction at Barnet, which is the one where they killed Warwick the Kingmaker amidst all the, oh, yeah, the mistiness, yeah, yeah, yeah. and also at Tewkesbury. And indeed he went on ahead of Edward to deal with uh, Falkenberg's assault on London, which was happening at that time as that well. That is a seriously violent period he's brought up with then. Very, and he's 18 in these yeah. battles, and that's his, he's just being brought mm. into it. But at this time, he's very loyal to his brother, winning some good reputation in terms of his fighting. 1472, he wished to marry Anne Neville, whom he'd known as a young boy, who was the daughter of the late Warwick the Kingmaker. Now, George, Duke of Clarence, his uh, other brother, opposed this because this would mean that they'd have to share Warwick's estates as Clarence was married to the other daughter of Warwick. Yeah. So Clarence wanted the whole lot, but if Richard married the other one, they'd have to share it. Okay, rift. Uh, in Big Rift, apparently uh, Clarence tried to hide Anne Neville by disguising her as a kitchen maid when Richard came <laughs> to visit. But she apparently escaped and went off to Richard. Um, a suggestion maybe that, you know, as they knew each other from childhood, they might have been genuinely in love, but also they both had quite a mutual self You lady novelist, you. Indeed. <laughs> you see where it comes into play now. Edward mediates, and of course, because Clarence has betrayed him previously, Richard's always been very loyal. Ultimately, he allows Richard to marry yeah. And Neville, so they share the lands. This gives Richard extensive estates in northern England and the Midlands, so he's building up his power base. Later years of Edward IV, and remember in 1475, Edward went over to France to try and launch an invasion there and decided just to make a treaty treaty at uh, Picigny instead. Mm, yeah. Apparently, uh, Richard was strongly opposed to this, went against the sort of chivalric code and promise of military glory, and maybe suggestions that at this point his view of Edward is a little bit tarnished. Previously, he'd idolised Edward Because before. of the treaty. Right. Now he sees, actually, he's made peace. He's getting a little portly and enjoying right. the finer things in life rather than the noble cause right. that their ancestors had fought for. 1478, his brother Clarence was executed for treason. Um, 
when he fought against Edward the yeah. Fourth quite a lot. Yeah. Richard is said to have been greatly grieved and to have blamed the Woodville family, particularly Elizabeth Woodville, for the execution of his brother, and said to have vowed revenge and then gone off. His to brother's the... wife. Edward the um, Fourth's wife. Yeah. So, yeah. so his, he was then said to have gone off to the north, kept himself to himself, but wanted revenge. Oh dear. On the other hand, he did benefit because he got a lot of the land that was forfeited. So what's appearing here is a really it's a family struggle um, right from mm. the off. Very much so, and he's he's still loyal to his brother Edward the Fourth. Very much loyal. He's done lots of things for him, but he does not like the Woodfields particularly, mm. okay. and he's separate in the north with mm. quite extensive lands. So for the rest of the period, as you said, he's in the north, getting more and more powerful. But 1483, Antonio Fraser said, if Richard had died at this point rather than Edward IV, he'd be rather quietly remembered as this very loyal, consummate, decent, chivalric, medieval knight. But, but Edward IV dies. Mm. And what should have happened is that Edward IV's um, 12-year-old son, Edward V, should have become king. But, as we did last week, Stony Stratford, when Edward V was coming from Ludlow to London, Richard storms along arrests his maternal uncle, Earl Rivers, the uncle of Edward V, takes control of his nephew, comes into London, establishes himself as the protectorate, but then puts Edward V in the Tower of London. Lots of violence, um, military presence from all his northerners, in particular at council, he gets rid of the sort of chief other noble, the moderate noble, uh, Hastings, um, claimed that he was plotting against him, orchestrated that oh, yeah. dramatic arrest yeah, where he's yeah, dragged yeah. out of council and beheaded on Tower just Green, there, yeah. just there. And then he pressurises Elizabeth Woodville, who is in sanctuary at Westminster Abbey, to give up her second son, also called Richard, into his custody. So then he has both of the sons of Edward IV, puts them both in the Tower of London, claims that Edward IV's marriage and so his sons were illegitimate, takes the throne for himself, and then, of course, the princes are never seen again. It was all very easy for him. There was no, there was no opposition. Like, as soon as people seemed to think that it was going one way, no one put up any fight. Indeed, it's all very decisive, and yeah. he just does it. it. However, from that point on, resistance comes right. thick and fast. His chief ally through all of this had been the Duke of Buckingham, but then 1483, just a few months after he's king, with Buckingham's help, suddenly Buckingham launches a rebellion against Richard. And this was... There was something to do with Rivers here, is that right? Um, no, Rivers was executed by this point. Yeah. Okay. It was suggested that um, maybe he was outraged when he heard about the rumour that the princes had been murdered. Alternatively, maybe he just wanted to take the throne for himself because he did have descent from Edward III, so maybe he saw an opportunity right. to gain for himself. But the rebellion was fought in the name of an obscure Lancastrian exile called Henry Tudor. Now, Henry Tudor had a better claim to the throne, though still a pretty weak one, because he was descended through the Beaufort family. Yeah. So what was going to happen was um, that uh, rebellions would take place in southern England, Henry would land in the southwest of England, and then Buckingham would come over with troops over the River Severn from Wales, so you'd have lots of things appearing all at once, Richard wouldn't know where to go, and they'd all meet together and just storm it. Good plan. Good plan. Unfortunately, the Kents, always ready to rebel, did so a bit too soon. <laughs> so they did it too early. The Duke of Norfolk was able to put it down quite easily. Henry was unable to land when he wanted to because of storms. Buckingham similarly was unable to cross the Severn because of the bad weather. And he started to run out of supplies. And he was unpopular in Wales. And he was betrayed by his men. And he was executed by Richard. Bish, bash, bosh. And then Henry Tudor, when he starts to land, and people are saying, come on, come on, we can get rid of them. Get rid of Richard, thinks, mm, I'm not too sure about this, and goes back home. Of course, they were Richard's men, thinking, we can just do this all in one fell swoop. So what, people on land were saying? Come over, come and land, we're going to get rid of Richard, but they were Richard's men. Trying and he to... knew that. Yeah, you could tell. So Henry goes back to Brittany, back into exile, and Richard has survived. But this reveals that he hadn't managed to win the support of the Yorkists at court who had served his brother. Mm. Because either they fight against him or they just don't fight at all. And he has now got a clear rival for the throne in Henry Tudor. And because Buckingham is now out of the picture, it's just Henry Tudor versus Richard III. Exactly. So 1484-85, Richard tries to get uh, Brittany to give Henry up, tries to have him extradited. Starting to be successful, but Henry, the wily Henry Tudor, escapes to Charles VIII in France. And of course, France 
are sort of in this conflict with Brittany, so they were clean, keen to prevent an alliance between England and Brittany. Yeah. So they thought, right, we'll support Henry, help him to get rid of Richard, yeah. and then we'll be, yeah, we'll be settled over here. However, Richard also tries to get more support at home. He goes on royal tours, trying to promote good government around the country, persuades Elizabeth Woodville to come out of sanctuary at Westminster Abbey with her daughters and return to court. So he, you know, yeah, and she does it, and which she is does amazing it, thing. which is very impressive. However, he suffered some uh, unfortunate personal losses. His only son, Prince Edward, dies in 1484, at which apparently he and his wife are said to have been almost bordering on madness by reason of their sudden grief. Mm. And indeed, his wife Anne herself dies in 1485. They did murder two princes, according to me. According to us, he did. But this means, of course, that his reign is now much less stable because he doesn't have a wife, doesn't have an heir, and he's got a rival supported by the French. Oh, yeah, things are looking really bad. Things are looking really ropey. So, we're on the road to a big battle. Richard knows that at some point Henry Tudor is going to invade and launch a bid for the throne. So he orders a military census of the lords and gentry to find out how many men could be mustered at 12 hours' notice. He's getting prepared, getting his armies together. And apparently when Henry finally does invade, Richard professed himself to be joyful, um, really happy that now the long-wished-for day had arrived for him to triumph with ease over so contemptible a faction. So he's actually quite relieved that he's got the chance yeah. just to get, get it all Pushes out, off. get rid of him, done. So Henry invades, uh, he lands near Milford Haven, um, largely with French mercenaries, but then he gathers lots of Welsh reinforcements along the way, marches eastwards, and then the 22nd of August, 1485, the armies meet outside Market Bosworth. Ah, familiarity. You know what this means? Yeah. The Battle of Bosworth. It is right in the middle of the country as well. Indeed, it's the decisive. actual location isn't entirely known. Lots of these battles this time are poorly documented. There's been some recent studies that have suggested they do know where it is, but it's up for debate. But as you said, middle mm. of the country. In terms of the armies here, we've got Richard with about 10,000 troops, mm. and he's split into three, so they're led by him, the Duke of Norfolk, and the Duke of Northumberland. And so we've got the centre under Richard, the vanguard, ones at the front under Norfolk, and then the rear, which is led by Northumberland. And they're all lined up alongside this ridge, looking down at their enemies. Henry has got about 5,000 troops. And he's on lower ground. This is not On lower good. ground, approaching a bit of an awkward marsh. Um, but Henry's effectively at the rear. So it's the Earl of Oxford, John de Vere, right. a veteran of uh, the Battle of Barnet. So Henry's only got about 5,000 troops, but led by this veteran. However, key force are the Stanley family. Lords, uh, Lord William, uh, Sir William Stanley and Thomas Stanley, they've got a force of about 3,000 men. Now, previously, Sir William had been loyal to Richard, but his brother Thomas married a woman called Margaret Beaufort, and she is the mother of Henry Tudor. Ooh, so there's a bit of split okay. loyalties in the Stanley family, and indeed, um, Sir Thomas Stanley had been arrested for treason early in the year, but released. Richard still had custody of Lord Strange, who was the son of Sir Thomas Stanley. He's so, only going to go one way. Indeed. So, well, you think, what's he going to do? Who is he going to back? Um, his loyalty, basically, is undecided. He's not actually come out for mm. anybody yet. So he's there on the battlefield with 3,000 men, but he's not doing anything. He's just watching, seeing what's going to happen. Oh, right. Okay. Mm. So, the battle begins. Um, Oxford leads Henry's troops forward, keeps them all tightly together because there aren't that many of them and they're not that experienced uh, in warfare. So they're all bound together, march around this awkward little marsh with cannon and arrow fire coming in, and then they come into hand-to-hand contact, uh, combat with the Duke of Norfolk's men, the vanguard. Well, so so they're, 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 they're marching around a march while under fire, but they're trained. They're not very well trained. They're not very well so trained. So Oxford's keeping them tightly together so that they don't wander off and right, okay. get themselves killed. Right, must be like, yeah, like herding sheep. Very much so. So... They're there, they're in battle. Oxford's men prove stronger in the fight. And um, indeed, Norfolk himself gets into hand-to-hand combat with Oxford, so the two leaders fighting with each other. Norfolk's guard was torn off in the fighting, and then he's killed, inevitably, arrow in the face. Oh, this has got to end. That's why they have the (laughs) armour. So that has quite a demoralising effect on Richard's army, because Norfolk is essentially the prime uh, military leader. Henry is at the rear of his army still. He's not really involved in this fighting, but he's concerned that they're still vastly outnumbered, in a bit of trouble. He goes off to try and find Stanley's men and say, please come and help. 
Mm. We could really do with the. Uh, so even though Norfolk's died, he's still got certain. <clears throat> they still got a lot of men for Richard. So mm. Henry going off a bit risky. Now Richard sees that the battle is getting into a bit of perilous state for him as well. He orders Northumberland to come along and join in the fray, but Northumberland refuses. Why? Well, it's much debated. Is it because the geography of the battlefield meant that it was impractical for him to do so, and he thought, mm, "Don't fancy that." Or is it because actually he just didn't want to fight for Richard? Because yeah, Richard yeah. has a problem getting people to fight for him, and maybe Northumberland just didn't want to fight for Richard. He could see what it was, where it was going. Exactly. Either way, Northumberland's got a few thousand men who are not joining in the battle, so suddenly Richard's advantage is looking much more slender, and if Henry Tudor gets over to Stanley and they join forces, it's really going to be bad. Yeah, so this whole battle is really, really balanced. <laughs> it it's really just, is. Yeah. So Richard... Thinking what to do, spots Henry Tudor's banners. And he thinks, I could take him. So he gets his household guards together, his sort of crack, sort of hundred or so men, and they make a charge directly for Henry Tudor himself. Yeah. Hollywood moments. However, he gets caught up in really heavy fighting. What, on the way through? On the way through. through And at this stage, Stanley looking down thinks, Richard's trapped now. If we intervene now, we can take Richard. Oh, yeah. Stanley yeah. brings his 3,000 men into the battle, surrounds Richard's men. They're caught up in it, they can't escape, and Richard is killed at the Battle of Bolsworth, aged just under 33 years old. When's this <coughs> My Kingdom of a Horse business? That's at this stage. We'll come on to that a little bit okay. in the uh, battleness. Right. But Richard's uh, his body is stripped, carried on the back of a horse for a rather lowly burial, uh, which even hostile chroniclers to him were a little bit unhappy about. They thought this isn't really a proper way to treat. Uh, the dead leader, and his bones are now lost to us. Oh, really? I don't actually know where they are, because I think the Reformation and Civil War stuff, yeah. they've been lost. But Richard III is dead. Job done. Right, Bosworth, really, really crucial battle then. Very, very crucial. One of the biggies mm. of English history. Yeah. Anyway, that is Richard's uh, rather brief reign, but okay. now's the time to give him the Let's review. Let's do it. Let's review this fella. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Battleliness. So, let's do the positives first for Richard III. You might think it's all bad, obviously. He has one big battle and he loses, but... There's positive stuff to talk about. Okay. 1471 campaign, as we said, when he was fighting for his brother. Um, at Barnet, this is his first battle. He's only aged 18, but he fights well in that hard, terrifying, misty mm. conditions. Then at Tewkesbury, Edward changed tactics by giving Richard control of his right flank. Previously, Hastings had been given the right flank, but he hadn't done so well at Barnet. So Hastings was moved to the rear guard, Richard into a more prominent position. And it was Richard whose men took the brunt of an assault by the Duke of Somerset, which sought to really undo Edward's army, but they held out, held firm. Edward wins the battle. Oh, right, OK. So he's, a, he's not just a good warrior, he's a, a good tactician, or at least he, on, a, on a lower scale, on a micro scale, he's good yeah. at directing troops in his media. Yeah. 1482, um, he had a campaign in Scotland where he advanced uh, into Edinburgh, moved back ultimately. He went to Scotland? Because when he was in the north, of course, the Duke oh, of Gloucester, right. yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. he was. So he's dealing with the northern mm. uh, disputes and they try to put a new king on the throne. He recaptures Berwick from the Scots. And this is the last time that Berwick ever changes hands. Oh, right. So Berwick is English because of Richard III. Oh, well, that's a couple of points. A couple of points there. The usurpation, of course, is all very controversial, a little bit dodgy, but, as you said... All very easy. It's unprecedented. Previous times where we had usurpations, it was because the king had ruled for about 20 years really, really badly, mm. and eventually somebody got fed up and got rid of him here. Well, it was more balanced, Lee. So, so yeah. oh, is he going to make it there? It's just step by step. Here, there'd been a successful king, mm -hmm. clear succession, everybody's fine with it, and somehow he just sweeps away the opposition, takes the throne. Mm. And he does it through very decisive action, very clever, very well done. You know, got to give him a bit of credit for that. Yeah. Yeah. Puts down the Bucking Rebellion, potentially very serious, but again, it's dealt with very easily. And then, of course, as we've just been discussing, we have the Battle of Bosworth itself. Now, you will say, of course, 
but he lost. Yeah. And he did. However, we got to take some enjoyment from that heroic final charge. Yeah, that it was a hell of a gamble. His life depended on it. Exactly, and, it and he saw the battle was in danger, saw Henry Tudor, and he led his guards charging right towards him, and he actually gets very, very close. Mm. Richard himself killed Henry's standard bearer, who's um, a man called William Brandon, who, for fans of the Tudors, is the father of Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk. And oh, really? best friend. That's his father. He's killed at this battle. And, of course, the standard bearer is the one who's holding Henry's flags, his standards. He's going to be quite close to Henry. Not only does Richard kill him, he unhorses a rather formidable knight called Sir John Chain with Richard with his own broken lance. So he couldn't have been more than a few feet away from Henry really? Tudor. It's even tantalisingly possible that they might have clashed swords. It's not impossible that could have happened. This great Hollywood moment where the two leaders are actually fighting together. It could have happened. Wow, that is... That's, yeah, you've got to give him some points. And ultimately lost, but there's no... I mean, he lost due to um, other factors, but the actual battliness bit, that's mm. good. And indeed, you were saying about the horse, um, and my kingdom for a horse. Mm. He ends up surrounded... Um, apparently his standard bearer, Sir Percival Thurwell, lost both of his legs, but in sort of Monty Python style, carried on holding the standard aloft until he was finally properly hacked down. So it's very intensive fighting. Richard's horse got mired in this marshland. Ironically, it became a weakness for him once he was down yeah. in the fighting the marshes. He was forced then to fight on foot. His men came along, offered him another horse so that he could escape, but he refused. He wanted to stay and fight on. And so he has this very heroic death where even the hostile chroniclers are full of praise for him. Uh, the Crowlin Chronicle said King Richard received many mortal wounds and, like a spirited and most courageous prince, fell in the battle and not in flight. John Roos, who was the one who said about him being this sort of two-year gestating baby with fangs and hair, uh, said, For all that, let me say the truth to his credit, that he bore himself like a gallant knight, and despite his little body and feeble strength, honourably defended himself to his last breath, shouting again and again that he was betrayed and crying, Treason! Treason! And Polydor Virgil, who's the historian of Henry VII, said, King Richard might have sought to save himself by flight, but he is said to have answered that that very day he would make an end, either of war or life. King Richard alone was killed fighting manfully in the press of his enemies. His courage was high and fierce and failed him, not even at the death which, when his men forsook him, he preferred to take by the sword rather than by foul flight, to prolong his life. So where's this My Kingdom from a Horse business from? Well, that's Shakespeare. Just making things up again? Making things up again. Oh, and of course, Richard III is the last English king ever to die in battle, and he's the first since 1066. That's a good... That's a Rex Factor fact. But Rex Factor fact, and I think a certain credit, not to go too, you know, sort of... Um, jingoistic and the glory mm. of war but it's something fairly noble that actually he's not some general at the back sending men to die he actually himself dies in the thick of and it's what they all i mean all these chroniclers that's you can see how it's that's a noble thing to do. a lot of them would have preferred to die in battle than yeah. old and decrepit mm. so um it's pretty good actually isn't it indeed but well, something sorry oh, just something i um i was wondering when you say he did that last charge though yeah before we, we were told how he was pretty weak and had a withered arm and stuff. No. Just how effective would it have actually been? He can't have been quite as weak as they implied. Yeah. And he didn't have both of his arms withered. So presumably his better arm was the one that he was... Because he was still, I suppose would have still been trained with. as a... And he was definitely trained, so he loved outdoor pursuits and military stuff. He was very much into all of that kind mm. of stuff. So although he's a bit smaller and he's not a giant like Edward III or Edward I, he's still... Mm. used to doing it. Ah, oh, head with a fur. There he is. <laughs> However, there are negatives for Richard III. We can't pretend okay. that he's this all-conquering military hero. The 1482 Scottish campaign, the aim of it was actually to install the Duke of Albany as a new Scottish king. But this doesn't happen at all. He, Richard gets to Edinburgh unopposed, but then Albany decides, actually, not so sure about this, I'm not going to try and be king anymore. So Richard ends up heading back to Berwick, so that's the only positive they get out of it, and apparently it's quite expensive to maintain anyway. So Charles Ross, in historian, says that in no sense can the invasion of Scotland be cited in evidence to support the oft-repeated claims by Richard's defenders that he was possessed of outstanding military capabilities. 
Well, you're just a different, my friend. <laughs> but it's still called Berwick upon Tweed, doesn't it? I'd have changed the name mm, if I him. South Scottish. On the map, it, you've got the line and the little blip where Berwick is. Yeah. Mm, so that's the little um, geographical nod to Richard. Yes. <laughs> the big thing which we found at Bosworth, his problem is that he isn't able to get people to fight for him, which mm. is an important part of being a general and a king, is that your people are fighting for you. And they just don't for Richard. The, Beck- uh, the Buckingham Rebellion revealed that he was unable to win the sports of the magnates. Even his own right-hand man, within a few months, has turned against him. And even though he puts down the rebellion, that's because a lot of people don't fight for it. But similarly, they don't fight for him either. Yeah. They just yeah. stay at home. Yeah, he's just not. he hasn't got the charisma of his predecessors. Indeed, certainly not yeah. the force. So the Stanleys changed sides, which cost him the battle. Northumberland doesn't actually fight for him at all. And he knew about this. He ordered one of his henchmen to keep a close watch on unreliable gentry ahead of the Battle of Bosworth, i.e. so that they didn't go running off and yeah. not staying with him. So he knew that his support was crumbling. Mm. And he knew that he needed a quick win at Bosworth to sort himself out. Right. And of course, at the Battle of Bosworth... Heroic last charge, Desmond Stewart argues against, saying it was not a brilliant tactical manoeuvre, as is sometimes claimed, but an insane gamble. I don't I mean it was a huge And it revealed gamble. that he'd failed, that he had to resort to it. Yeah, but he was taking... Pro- I mean, this is because he wasn't personal and couldn't get people to fight for him. Yeah. But given those, that situation, I think he did the only sensible thing at the time that he could do. So they stay there and lose the battle, or lose it trying to win it. Yeah. And... He got slowed down, but as you say, it was tantalisingly close. Mm. Oh, I think it's good. And, of course, we do have to point out the obvious. He does lose the Battle of Bosworth. Yeah. And he started it with overwhelming numerical superiority, probably twice mm. as many men as Henry. Mm. Um, but ultimately, he failed to convert this into a victory. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggie, isn't so it? So he does lose the one big battle of the mm-hmm. period. However, there's some good stuff there. There's some heroism, there's some... Actual fighting going on. He's got on. all the right ideas, hasn't he? He does, He's but... Just, um... No, no, the... Um, go well. yeah. so how are we going up. to score him? Much higher than I'd have imagined. Mm. I think that the... He was brought up with great success mm-hmm. in those campaigns where he wins his spurs. The Barrett campaign... It, I mean, it he... It wasn't a loss. He gained something from it. it was expensive. Uh, didn't put the chap on the on the drone, but that that was a side. You know, he didn't yeah. want any more. Usurpation. Really, I mean, he knew, he had a plan. He did it. It was staged well, right through. Put down the rebellions. And the, as we were saying, Bosworth was so close. Mm-hmm. It was the balance was tilting one way and the other, and he tried to go for the final stroke, but it Just didn't pay off. It. It's good. He just loses one of the biggest battles <laughs> of British history. <laughs> so it can't be that good. But it, oh, it's tricky. It's really tricky. I think I'm going to give him a six overall. I think it needs to be positive rather than negative. But it's all it's all nearlies. And I suppose we had Harold II, who he really liked, mm. who nearly won Hastings. But he had just run down from the top of the country, having defeated the most formidable Viking in history. So he had got a win under his belt. He'd got other wins. Whereas Richard is lots of really good, impressive stuff, but we don't actually have one battle we can say, this is where Richard bossed it. Yeah, yeah. He's got a great CV, but he gets fired. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, six, I think it's reasonable. It needs to be positive. It needs Mm. to be positive. But he loses the Battle of Bosworth, which is big. It is big. (laughs) So that's a 12 for Richard's third for Battleness, which is not a bad start at all. Mm. Scandal. Well, there's plenty to go on here. This is going to be big. Some of it, a lot of it, in fact, is hotly disputed by many people, but we're going to do it all and see what we think. 1471 campaign, back under the reign of Edward IV. Many deaths attributed to Richard III. Uh, Prince Edward, not Richard III's son, Prince Edward, but the son of Henry VI, he fought at the Battle of Tewkesbury and... It was alleged that afterwards Prince Edward came into the company of Edward, Clarence and uh, Richard and uh, was killed there and then, potentially at the hand of Richard III. What did, what, he just went was. along to, for a post-match briefing and, and they, they slaughtered him? Yeah. Crumbs. However, also it's possible that he was just actually killed on the field of battle or escaping. Yeah, and he, even if he was executed, it's, it's at Edward IV's instruction. Yeah, and this is all stuff that we've heard after the event. And yeah, smear. very yeah. much so. 
also a potential smear is Henry VI. As it was said, um, this is John Roos again, what was most detestable to God and all Englishmen, and indeed to all nations to whom it became known, he caused others to kill the holy man King Henry VI, or, as many think, did so by his own hands. What? So, 1471, after the Battle of Tewkesbury, Henry VI was imprisoned at the Tower of London, which I think uh, Richard potentially was in charge of at the time. Right. So they went back, they were there, Edward was there, Richard was there, a few other important people were there, and Henry, as you lovely put it the other week, was put to sleep. <laughs> now, some suggested, even at the time, even before um, Shakespeare and the Tudors come along, that potentially Richard actually did it. Or at least got one of his men to do it. So he was the go-to guy if you wanted some dirty deeds done. Yeah, he'd, um, someone off. Yeah, come on, go on, go and see Richard Hill. Mm. Right. Again, if it is true, it's at Edward the Fourth's order. So yeah, he can't escape so responsibility, much. but he's involved. And certainly what he did do after Tewkesbury, he exercised his right as the Constable of England to execute without trial or witness. So the last Duke of Somerset and also other Lancastrians were dragged out of Tewkesbury Abbey, where they were trying to claim sanctuary and then executed without right to trial, including one who was in holy orders and so should have been immune from such things. Yeah, there is so much smear here that you, <laughs> you think that... Uh, maybe people think well, if there's something dodgy but done, it's probably Henry, but I don't know, there's quite a lot of smear. There's quite a lot there. And of course, as we've seen, he had that violent upbringing. We'd, he saw what Warwick did when he stole the throne briefly from Edward mm. IV. He killed some of um, Edward's old allies, so he's... It's not an alien culture for Richard to do this. Another thing that is sometimes levelled against him is the execution of the Duke of Clarence, his brother, in 1478. Now, traditionally, this is seen as the Woodfills being nasty. Yeah, I thought that that. annoyed him. Indeed, but Shakespeare and others claim that he was in some way responsible for it. Now, Desmond Stewart's argued that undoubtedly if Richard III had interceded to say, no, Edward, you can't kill our brother then he could probably have helped get Clarence off the, uh, off the execution ticket. And in fact, Richard benefits in terms of getting some of his land and his inheritances. So it's unlikely that Richard actually caused it to happen. But he's certainly not entirely morally blameless in the situation. If he'd wanted to stop it, he probably could have. Yeah, um, but at the same time we see a cha- change in his behaviour after it's happened. Mm. But maybe that's a long game he's playing. He's not doing anything because he knows that's a reason then for him to rebel. It's benefiting. Mm. Mm. But again, it's Edward IV's fault, certainly. Yeah, yeah. So no, can't p- yeah. fully put it onto Richard. However, now we move into Richard's territory where everything is definitely his fault. Right. The usurpation. That's, Clearly, yeah, Richard's. That's very scandalous. <laughs> very scandalous. Shocked the country, shocked Europe, and completely unexpected. There was no real justification for it, and the people never accepted it. Yeah, there it. was a case for a minority. He's there, he's in London. And then, that's why I can't understand there was no resistance. He just, he, he must have halfway through gone, this plan is going really well. Yeah. <laughs> green, green, green. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, you know, you, there's no, oh, I don't know. Anyway, it I think he just took him on. It was so shocking that nobody believed it would happen, except probably Elizabeth Woodville, who, yeah, who no one yeah, was listening yeah, yeah, to. Exactly, right. So that's pretty scandalous. Various executions. Um, Earl Rivers, Edward V's maternal uncle, other men prominent in Edward's household. Of course, Hastings, a major and popular noble, former ally of Richard, dragged out of council, mm. executed on the spot that's on really trust up charges. Yeah. I mean, that's really, really terrible. And there's no real justification except sort of mafia style. Yeah. He's causing me problems. He's a bit of an obstacle. The biggie, of course, princes in the tower. It's huge. Hotly disputed, as we know, but we did it last week, and we decided once and for all that Richard was guilty. So we've got to go by our own judgment here. So yes. he's definitely guilty for that as far as this is concerned. And this is probably about one of the most notorious crimes in sort of royal English history. I mean, I can't think of, we've got Beckett, which we normally judge things by. Yeah. Um the Saxon chap who had sex with a daughter and his wife and his mother. mother yeah. yeah. Um but I mean that's not featuring big on the um, on no. the overall history. So it's just it, it's up there with Beckett. And it's a huge, t- in terms of the impact it has, I mean, this is a king, a young mm. king who's just mm. thrown off and, of course, leads to the Tudors, ultimately. What do we give... Um... Oh, there's more. Oh, right. There okay. is more. <laughs> of course, the fact of the guilt, it's sort of not so much more of this because we've said he's guilty, but in terms of how he is seen by others in his scandalous state. 
Um, when Elizabeth Woodfield comes out of sanctuary, she only does so after Richard makes a public oath basically not to kill her. <laughs> so he says, I, Richard, promise and swear that if the daughters of Elizabeth Grey, late calling herself Queen of England, will come to me out of the sanctuary of Westminster, then I shall see that they shall be in surety of their lives. Now, I think it's pretty scandalous if the king has to publicly swear not to kill his um, brother's Sister wife Shaw, and yeah. his nieces. Crumbs. Yeah, that is pretty heavy. And there is more still. His marital relations. Yes, there's sex in there too. There is sex in there too. Of course, as we said, his son, Prince Edward, died in 1484, and this left Richard without an heir, which is problematic. Um, his wife, Anne, was ill at the time and didn't look like she was ever going to conceive again. So Richard shunned her bedchamber. She wouldn't go to her bed anymore. He basically said... She's done with that now. She's useless. She's useless. Something of a public humiliation for Anne Neville. But it was strongly rumoured at the time that Richard was planning to marry his niece, Elizabeth of York. Oh, it's not just any... It's not just any... (laughs) That's that's heavy. It's largely incestuous. Hushed up by the Tudor chroniclers, because, of course, Elizabeth of York marries Henry VII and is the mother of Henry VIII, Mm. so she has to be whiter than white. But there's actually a strong suggestion that it may even have been consummated, or at the least both parties were interested in it. There was a a letter written by Elizabeth of York to a Portuguese ambassador where she said that she was um, in his heart and thoughts, in body and in all. That's huge! Is this Rex actor revealing something here? We're we're digging deeper (laughs) than most have gone before. In terms of Richard's motivation for this pretty scandalous um, course of affairs, um, firstly is the appearance of Elizabeth of York. She's about 18 years old, very beautiful, with sort of golden, slightly reddish hair, and according to a Portuguese ambassador, was said to have had large breasts. Ah, so he, she's got a hump chest. And <laughs> he had a hump back. Perfect for each other. Yeah. So, so there's a basic sensual yeah. attractment that we've got there. So yeah. a lusty king. But also, he knew that Henry Tudor was planning to marry her. And so oh. sort of cement his claim to the throne and his whole kind of unity. Yeah. So exactly, he just wanted to knock that one away from him. Um, the impact on this, and Neville had very strong northern support, which was vital for Richard. And their loyalties even were being strained by this. So his friends, to his face, had to tell him to publicly deny that he was going to do this. So again, Richard is forced in public to issue a denial that he's trying to marry his niece. It's like everyone knows he's up to no good and he's just it's just a veneer of the kings making people say, that, no, it's not true. And of course everyone they're knows. also believing that he's going to marry her after bumping off his wife. So his denial... It says, it never came in his thought or mind to marry in such manner-wise, nor willing or glad of the death of his queen. But nevertheless, when Anne does die in 1485, to be fair, probably of tuberculosis, but there are many rooms at the time that Richard poisoned her. I can't see how this isn't a 10 out of 10. (laughs) It's epic. He's killing everyone around him. He's having sex with everyone he shouldn't. Including his niece. Including his niece. Having murdered her brothers. Uh, And... Yeah, and then we've got the... This is ten. I'm going ten. It's got to be a big ten for Richard, so that is twenty. Have we had a twenty We've before? never had a twenty for Scandal. We did wow. have a twenty for Henry V and Battliness, but that is a huge start for Richard III. Twenty for Scandal. Subjectivity. So we might expect that this is where he's probably going to do less well. Would you want to be ruled by him? Is he a good, just king? Mm. Surely not. But we have some positives. OK. Let's go for it. He's quite a cultured monarch. He's uh, ruled over what was said to have been a very magnificent court, saw the value of pageantry and ceremony, um, was a renowned um, patron of music and the arts, and apparently he dressed in sumptuous imported Italian velvets, cloths of gold, silks and satins, many embroidered and furred with ermine, and his preferred colours were crimson, purple and dark blue. Oh, that's nice. What do you like for breakfast? Well, unfortunately, that wasn't <laughs> recorded in my notes, but he's... You know, he's got cultural yeah, taste. Okay. Noted um, by Roos, again, his enemy chronicler, as uh, praiseworthy for his building, as at Westminster, Nottingham, Warwick, York and Middleham, and many other places. So he's doing some building. Right. Building all that stuff up. Extremely pious, apparently. Made numerous religious foundations and promoted learned men to ecclesiastical office. And, sort of like Henry VI before him, he's very much a patron of education. So he was a notable patron of um, Oxford and also King's College, Cambridge. 
though he's got some good stuff that he's doing there. Right. He also shows him capable, himself capable of good governance. Uh, the chronic, Italian chronicler Mancini said that he set out to acquire the loyalty of his people through favours and justice. The good reputation of his private life and public activities powerfully attracted the esteem of strangers. Now, one of the things he does um, is get rid of a thing called benevolences. In 1484, this was something set up by Edward IV, where basically wealthy people had to give him a loan, i.e. just give him some money, so they got more money. Ritter III gets rid of this. No more um, summary charges or exactions or impositions called benevolences. Doesn't accept money from people in the same way. Much more fair, mm. just way of doing things. But in particular, his 1484 Parliament had lots of very impressive um, pieces of legislation. Um, he sets up a court of requests... And this is so that poor people who weren't able to afford legal representation were able to apply to have their grievances heard in a court where they didn't have to pay. So even if they were poor, they could still get oh, right. potentially some yeah. kind of uh, recourse to the law. He also greatly informs the system of bail um, in the legal system. So he improved this to protect felons from imprisonment before trial and also to make sure that their properties were protected from seizure before they were imprisoned. Mm. So he's doing some good justice uh, reforms there. He bans restrictions on printing and sales of books to help invigorate that new industry. And he orders the translation of written laws and statutes from traditional French into English. That's that's pretty. That's quite major. Mm, very major. Yeah. There's that's some brilliant. good stuff here. Yeah. But the biggest thing for Richard is his status in the north of England. Now, north of England at this time, described by um, the not too politically correct, as Monsieur, as a bleak, often rugged country. They were hard men, harsh and dour. They grew rougher and more warlike still towards the border. And apparently there was a southern rhyme at the time which says, Out of the north an ill comes forth. So, so this was written recently, was it? Uh, no, that, that was... Uh... <laughs> a little bit of satire there. Ooh, indeed. And, of course, the Wars of the Roses, we'd had a feud between the Percy and Neville families in the north of England. So there was lawlessness, there was conflict... Border raids with mm. Scotland is a dangerous and very difficult place. And he did a raid to, to go and put that, try and restore some order up there. Did a raid to restore things to Scotland. He has lots of influence in the north, huge tracts of land through grants, and of course his marriage and Neville. And he pretty much rules as a monarch in the north in his own right. It's entirely his own fiefdom, really. Mm. Edward stays in the south. Richard's doing his own thing up north. Lots of uh, private disputes refer to his arbitration both ecclesiastical and secular, which reveals the extent to which he's really dominating what's going mm. on. If people want to resolve something, he's the man that they go to. And he shows lots of good governance up there. He restores peace and stability. As you said, he fought those border wars with Scotland with some success, promotes impartial justice in resolving uh, disputes. His legal commissioners toured the region, trying to dispense justice to rich or poor, gentle or simple. And there are lots of activities on the record. They were very busy, including things like suppressing illegal fish traps, always important, mm -hmm. and uh, commuting taxes in times of uh, need. And most importantly of all was the Council of the North. In December 1483, he establishes this new council to improve northern government. So previously, the North has deteriorated, its economy has struggled, particularly following the harrying of the North way back under William the Conqueror. It's never really recovered. Yeah, when he salted the earth. Yeah, it's it? never really recovered from that. And all government activity and economic activity is based in London. But Richard sets this council up to try and improve government actually in the north. And he's very, very popular up there. The uh, York City Fathers expressed their gratitude to him, saying, um, this is before he became king, the Duke of Gloucester shall, for his great labour, be presented with six swans and six pikes. Very That's grateful. Very nice. Francis Bacon, um, again, a... Henry VII, uh, historian, commenting on rebellions that Henry VII faced in 1489 in the north, said that the memory of King Richard was so strong that it lay like leaves in the bottom of men's hearts, and if the vessel was but stirred, it would come up. I.e., four years after Richard III has died, the memory of him is still strong in the north, so they're could... rebelling against Henry VII. Yeah, he could... He was... So he was... Popularly, could get men to fight for him, but only northerners. And this, of course, because he was in the north for a long time, of course. Mm. He wasn't king for very long. York Civic Records, when they heard that he died, and of course there was a new king, a new dynasty, rather bravely they say, King Richard, late mercifully reigning upon us, was piteously slain and murdered to the great heaviness of this city. I, they bold. go on public record after he dies to say, yes, yeah, sad about this. 
That is bold. Mm. So he was pretty much unique as being a largely northern monarch, and he's the only one in English history. His support base was basically northern. He was much more familiar with the northern culture and people than any of his predecessors. And it's something of a golden age, really, for the north to have such a close relationship yeah. with the crown. It's never happened before, and it never really happens again. No. And Seward, one of his hostile critics, says it was a considerable achievement because north country men were not easy to govern, but Richard does. But that's... that's that's quite impressive, isn't it? It is quite impressive. Yeah. Better than perhaps he might have been expecting. Certainly was, yeah. But there's bad. Yeah. There is bad. The usurpation, impressive as it is as a military feat, it's not very good for the governance of the country. Totally upsets the natural order of things, leads to executions, fear of violence amongst the common people. That's one of the reasons why he's able to dominate so quickly, is that once he's done these executions, everyone's so scared for their lives and all these northern people running around. He's just going to kill everyone. Yes, everyone's yeah. scared of him. Yeah. So this isn't really a nice thing to be a subject of no, this is time. Is it necessary after usurpation? Well, it was necessary for him to remain king. It wasn't yeah. really necessary for the good governance of the country okay. that it happened in the first place. And then the 1483 rebellion reveals the extent of his opposition across the country and his lack of support. People weren't willing to fight for him. He's not a king who wins the love and respect of his people as a nation. Yeah, he's just got the northerners. Indeed, and the northern reliance in many ways is something of a problem because he really, really does rely on them. Apparently, in his short reign, there were seven vacancies in the Order of the Garter. Six of them were filled by some of his supporters from the north. Right, yeah, so, so he's not... all the key men have got to be the north. It's also suggested Buckingham's rebellion may partly be motivated by the fact that he felt undue prominence was being given to some of Richard's friends in the north rather than Buckingham and some of his yeah, other Yeah, he didn't men. win new friends very well. When he came After to Buckingham, he used the forfeited land of the rebels that he had fought against and he put trusted northern servants into them to try and enforce royal authority. So he's having to put his men from the north into these positions to enforce his rule, and obviously people don't like that. Mm. Not least because, as we said from that rhyme out of the north and ill comes forth, people are actually quite generally scared of the northerners. They see them as barbarians... In 1461, when Margaret of Anjou had been marching on London, she couldn't get in because of the reputation of her northern soldiers. People thought yeah, they were that's right, the Londoners stopped them, yeah. Exactly, people generally feared them. So the fact that Richard really close to the north doesn't mm-hmm. really sell no. him to the Londoners. Yeah, yeah. And of course, lastly, we have Henry Tudor. In 1483, before the usurpation, Henry was a largely powerless, obscure exile with no prospect of power. Richard's usurpation and actions makes him into a potential rival for the throne. 1484, Richard, getting increasingly nervous in his attempts to remove his rival, issues a rather ranting proclamation against Henry Tudor for having abandoned his country and being a traitor, as we said, demanding that military census of his nobles. John Gillingham suggests that this is almost justifying the Tudor portrait of him nervously pulling at his wrist, pulling at his dagger. Because he's just waiting. Since he's actually quite twitchy. That's why he's so relieved when Henry doesn't invade, because he just wants it over with. But again, I think that's... That's a necessary action. If you had someone about to invade, you would do a census. You'd find out what... That's giving good preparedness. Indeed, indeed. But 1485, of course, we have a big battle at Bosworth. Richard loses. Nobody really fights for him. And apart from the civic record at York, nobody really misses him either. No. And given that it's such a major battle, it's actually probably wasn't that much interested in it at the time. No one knows who Henry Tudor is, because he's been in France the whole time. And no one really cares about Richard III. So yeah. it should be. It is a huge battle in history, but at the time, there were no real big sympathies. Richard hasn't been able to carry the aura of a king, which previous monarchs had done. Yeah. Right. So, how do we score him for subjectivity? I, I, overall, mm. I'm going on the positive side. I'm going above five. Uh-huh. I know <laughs> that all this scandal stuff makes him bad. Yes. But that was largely... Um, uh, Restricted to the aristocracy, mm. which he went around killing with abandon. Yes. But <laughs> the but for a subject... In the north. A, in the north. There was culture, there was all this new reforms. And the, the cinema part is of a very, very small period where he's king. Very, mm. very short period of time. And it's a lot of it's based on the, the fact that he did usurp the crown. Mm. And you know, he, his then his other, his actions after that are trying to keep it. Mm. And I think, given the opportunity, which we can't judge him on, I, he would have tried to carry those reforms he did in the north 
South. I think I think it's I'm going six because obviously there's that he he lost the crown and that's mm. you know fear feeling of um well, I don't know you wouldn't be very sure of where you were but mm. no I think it's guy over six I'm 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 coming around to this chat I like him I'm giving him a five and a half and I agree ultimately there's good signs there and Richard supporters would say had he had had he won Bosworth he could have been a really good king if this had been typical of what was to come. Mm. But I think you don't have all of that. No, you can't judge on So I'm giving him a five and a half. But nevertheless, that's 11 and a half for subjectivity. Not very bad at all. Longevity. Well, he's going to come down here a bit. 1483 to 1485, a mere two years. It's a shame. So that's not very good for Richard. Dynasty. Not the programme. Well, again, this is another one that's going to pull him up. He uh, had that one son, but ultimately he has no surviving legitimate children. Zero, big fat zero. Two illegitimates, but no legitimates. So that's a total of 45.5, which isn't a terribly bad score it's for not, such a notorious king. Had he you know, ruled for a long time, yeah. he'd have been right up there. What? Now, this would be the interesting thing for me. What did John get? John got 52. Right. Interestingly, Richard III got exactly the same as Edward II. Edward II? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Who's king? Yeah, mm. yeah. So, that's Richard III, that's his reign, that's all his, um, his factors, but we have one more question we have to ask to give the final judgment on Richard. Does he have that great achievement, that lasting legacy, the star quality to earn him his place in history with what we call... Rex Factor! You know what, I... He's an interesting one, he isn't is. he? He is. I... The reason I asked about John was I noticed that we didn't give it to him. We didn't. But... I think if we could give, uh, if we, it depends. How do you how do you define the indefinable, <laughs> undefinable Rex factor quality? But if it was on infamy, John and Richard, they are mm. way up there. I mean, they're like the if we if we see Rex factor as a whole as Hollywood movie, they're <laughs> the baddies. Oh yes, and they're they're really good baddies. Mm. I, and so, I mean, that is a star quality in itself. And also, we want the infamy, as you say, the usurpation, princes in the tower, the wealth of scandal mm. that we had. And also, of course, we've got Bosworth, that heroic final charge. That's got this sort of legendary mm. status about it. And he's also, he's the last Plantagenet. Because mm. where we've had the Yorkist Lancastrians who all descended from Edward III, they're all Plantagenets. That goes back to Henry II in 1154. Mm. So it's 1154 to 1485. That's 331 years. He's that last yeah. plantagenet, and he has that last charge. And he had, yeah, and, the, and it was so close. And it's like the meeting of medieval charging at the Renaissance prince to be. Yeah, these two eras, Bosworth often seen as the cutoff point. Yeah, yeah, that is, yeah, no, it's, it's lovely um, symbolism. Against him, it's a short-lived reign. He's defeated at Bosworth. He's always basically struggling to try and keep himself above water. It's because he's got a dodgy arm, though. You can't dodgy arm, indeed. He's going around in a circle. And I thought, looking at him, that he... Basically what happens is that in opposition, when he's the prince, Richard, mm. as it were, he's in some ways very moral, very intelligent, good ruler. He's got good qualities, good promise. But he's not happy with the way things have been done at court. And then he sort of seizes power through not very particularly good means, relies on a narrow band of factionalism and ultimately is kicked out quite quickly quite unpopular unable to really rule and get the people on his side he's basically Gordon Brown <laughs> yeah and Edward IV is Tony Blair yes this is brilliant and you're right but we've seen this that a lot in that people have great credentials as princes and then as soon as they get power it either all goes wrong or the power corrupts mm. them um and this is the ultimate example of that. So I wonder, Richard III, he's got all that great scandal, he's certainly got this great presence in history, but ultimately, what's his great achievement? Ultimately, he fails. Yeah, his, 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 if it's the reign we're looking at, mm. and his achievement in his reign, his achievement, his yeah. point of note in his reign is losing. Yes. And this is, we've had this before, where you really want to give, um, uh, like um, Harold, yeah. you really want to give it to him, but he's known for losing. That's his biggest... But, uh, ew, oh, we need to have, like, an alternative <laughs> Rex Factor where the, the baddies... Factor. The baddies Filmed win. on Channel 4. <laughs> oh, because I started this saying I didn't like him. Yeah. And I don't like him. <laughs> but I respect what he did. But I more. think, yeah, I respect him a lot more. I think um, I'd like to, but I can't. So, 
final judgment, yes or no, does he have it? Oh, but this is my chance. This is my Richard III Bosworth moment. This is... No, he can't have it. I agree as well. There are lots of people that love him, but ultimately he fails. But I think what we have done there is the purpose of this show, redress the balance. Exactly. There's much more to Richard III than the Shakespearean monster that you may have been familiar with. Yeah, don't... I think if we're going to get anything out today, (laughs) today's lesson is... Don't read Shakespeare, listen to Rex Factor. Exactly. What a message to end on. See you next time.